How good are we in Australia when it comes to tech startups and innovation compared to, say, the US and other parts of the world? And what about just healthcare? How do we stack up compared to, say, other healthcare systems around the world? Better yet, how do we export all of that excellent work we're doing in healthcare here in Australia to other parts of the world using technology? My guest today is Will Egan. He's the Chief Strategic Officer at Ausmed Education, and he's super active on a global scale when it comes to the technology startup scene. Today, we're going to delve into how we can leverage all the good bits from what goes on in the tech industry globally and in Australia when it comes to healthcare and unlock new opportunities for companies and consumers. Alrighty, Team Health Tech, you know the drill. Let's make it happen. Welcome to Talking Health Tech with Peter Birch, a podcast featuring conversations with key players and influencers to promote innovation and collaboration for better healthcare enabled by technology. With me today is Will Egan. He's the Chief Strategic Officer at Ausmed Education, a company dedicated to enabling healthcare professionals and health workplaces to ensure education is effective and genuinely improves patient, client and resident outcomes. Will started at Ausmed in 2007 and worked on the popular Ausmed app, which is now used widely across the healthcare community to find, learn, and document their continuous professional development or CPD requirements. Outside of Ausmed, Will holds advisory and board roles with a number of global consumer and enterprise technology companies, and his goal in life is to help Australia build better global companies. Hey, Will, how are you doing, man? G'day. Great to be here, Pete. Thanks. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, I'm pumped about this one. Hey, we get to talk about health tech and startups and the global tech scene and all those kind of cool things. So I can't wait. Set the scene for us then. A bit about yourself. Who is Will Egan? Yeah, my background is probably in two areas. Technology, so building software, be they consumer or enterprise software products. And secondly, helping make sure that they reach the end user. So in the industry, that's sometimes referred to as growth. But basically what that means is it's one thing to build product uh, software. Uh, it's another thing to actually get people using it at a scalable kind of impactful level. And I would say for every one in a hundred or 1% of companies that are successful at building product, a subset of those, only a further 1% actually then have users get it to market and get people have the impact that they're pursuing. So yeah, that's my background. And so you bring a bit of a unique perspective to the conversation around the roles of technology and healthcare. Tell us a little bit more around your thinking there. Yeah, so I think that at, at the highest level, I think healthcare is such a fascinating part of the economy, as too is the education sector. All around the world, in every geopolitical area, they're traditionally two areas, especially in the Commonwealth world, that are largely paid for by the state. And what that's led to is that those industries have become quite domestic. Right, so you end up with a health kind of consumer, um, be that you know our family, uh, family members, or we refer to in the industry, patients, consumers, clients, whoever they may be, having two thoughts about healthcare. One is that they don't really feel like they can relate to a business. So if you said to them, name three companies that exist in the healthcare space, when they do tend to name those, they sometimes name government-run health services or not-for-profit private services like Catholic or Christian healthcare services. Uh, and the second phenomena is that we tend to not export it. So they become very domestic industries. So my view is that if we have a successful healthcare environment, as with the education sector, together they represent about 20 to 25% of our economy and probably similar percentage of economy right across the world. 
that if we do get really good at that within the confines of Australia, how do we then take that expertise and make it something that we can monetize across the world? That's pretty much my perspective. Yeah, and look, and we'll dig into a little bit more about that in a tick, but I'm keen to know as well your role at Osmed and, and about Osmed generally. And so how did you firstly get involved with them? Yeah, so in my gap year between uni and school, so 2007, I went and worked as a secretary there. So basically working, answering the phone calls. So if you ever called up Osmed, even probably today, sometimes I'll answer the phones. Um, <laughs> but back then I was definitely one of the main people on the phones. And I think it was just the presence of having a young person who at the time was referred to as, you know, uh, those young people, digital natives. They kind of live, breathe, thunk the way the internet worked. Uh, I was quickly working on a website build project in my first end towards the end of my first year. At the same time, I was studying business at Monash and I actually dropped out of that course because it felt so far away from what I was understanding and learning business to be on the grounds on the internet. Yeah. And then the rest is kind of history. So from there, uh, I worked alongside our CTO, Evan, and we partnered in 2009 to start building the CPD portfolio in preparation for national registration. And we went live 10 days after that had happened. So I think June 10th and national registration, uh, July 10th, national registration came out July 1st, 2010 from memory. Uh, we wanted to go live, but like all technology projects, we were delayed, even when it was just us building it, delayed 10 days. That kind of set us on a new course, which was to really help health professionals. Traditionally, Osmed had been an education provider itself. People, listeners back home may have been to an Osmed conference. We're still that today. We still provide a lot of education ourselves or actually have an Osmed textbook on their wall. The company started in the mid-80s publishing textbooks. It was one of Australia's few nursing publishing houses. And those textbooks went all around the world, um, not to the same level of success as they did in Australia, but uh, nonetheless, they were used by nurses and health professionals all around the world. And CEO Cynthia Wellings would say at the time, we're exporting ideas you know, in paper and we're exporting the best parts of the Australian healthcare system through pages, you know, through pages of a book to the world. The overarching goal of Osmed is quite straightforward and quite meaningful, which is what's kept me here for more than a decade. And it's that in any consumer's healthcare journey, there's a lot of things that can go right or wrong. And our belief is that education shouldn't be one of them. So not knowing shouldn't be the reason why someone got a pressure injury or not knowing shouldn't be the reason why um, a medication error occurred. Just simple examples. And that education is something we can control for in that healthcare experience. So therefore, we should try and make sure that it is controlled for. And what that looks like is that people aren't just doing learning and ticking boxes. They're not just meeting their CPD requirement or in the case of mandatory training, they're not just doing the module, but that the actual change that needs to occur when the hands touch the patient that change happens. And that's much more important. Sometimes education is not actually what's needed to drive that change. So a good education program would acknowledge or recognize that and not just mandate infection control measures if it's not actually a lack of knowledge that's preventing the practice from manifesting. So Osmed's vision is to make education effective in improving patient care and acknowledging that it's not the only thing that does that. 
Yeah, it's, it's interesting how it's evolved over such a period of time, you know, from back in the 80s to today. And I don't know the exact stats, but there's some jaw-dropping stat about the amount of new information that's available within, I guess, the medical field every day. And mm-hmm. it's it's like at a point where there's just too much information now for a clinician to keep up with what's available. How do you go about that as a provider of education as to the healthcare scene? And there's just too much information available now to keep on top of it. Like that's a big responsibility for you guys. Yeah, absolutely. You've touched on a critical point and I think it's the reason why CPD, Continuing Professional Development, was made mandatory and even in the US, for example, over the last 10 years, by our calculations, the number of state licensure boards that have made CPD or CE, as they call it, Continuing Education, mandatory in the US has doubled. And the reason is because with that proliferation of research, I remember seeing that stat, but I hesitate to even put one forward because it could be wildly (laughs) wrong. Um, But definitely, it's a lot. It's more than you could consume in your life. Lifetime, even if you sat there all day long reading and listening to papers. Uh, basically, the problem is how does that education, that new knowledge translate to practice? And the best evidence that we have to date is that people engage in ongoing learning. The way that we try and bridge that gap at OSMED is twofold. One, we help health professionals more clearly articulate their actual knowledge gaps for themselves. So the time they do spend learning is not just kind of wasteful or unfocused. It's actually focused on the things, the areas that they need knowledge in. And the second is that we partner with hundreds of subject matter experts right across the country who work in those research environments to help them not just publish the paper, but also, or read the paper, but actually make that knowledge sticky, that information sticky. Um, So actually teach you the ramifications through the screen or when COVID's not happening in a room at a conference, at a seminar and facilitate that knowledge transfer. Yeah, got it. And so obviously a big shift in what the company does in terms of getting the information out there going from textbooks to technology. How does Osmed go about building technology today? Yeah, it's a really good question. And to be honest, anyone who works in technology probably asks themselves that every single day. (laughs) What are we actually doing here? It seems like a bit of a mad science, Uh, but basically probably one recipe for success that our CEO put in place right at the start was that we have health professionals sitting alongside technologists. So a software engineer will work with a nurse, Um, a product manager, sometimes might be a paramedic or an ex-health professional or a current health professional, and they'll work with a product designer. And at the end of the day, the only way that we've really been able to successfully break down the barrier of those two problems I outlined earlier, not just could we build something, but will people that actually solve the problem sufficiently such that people continue to use it, is to have the health professionals driving the software development. You know, and then the software development people, practitioners sitting around them, um, supporting that vision in a kind of performant way so we don't build bugs or technical debt or all the things that people in the technology world worry about in that pursuit. Awesome. Thinking about Australia for a second and comparing to, I guess, the world and putting Australia on the world stage, what competitive advantage do we have as a country when it comes to healthcare or, or technology, actually? So I think everybody has a view on Australia's healthcare system, but I'd actually expand that further and say that everyone everywhere in the world has a view on their own healthcare system. Just like we do a public transport, every city you go to, people tell you it's terrible. You compare it to your own experience, like actually it's pretty good. You know, (laughs) a train that arrives every five minutes in London that's packed is better than one that arrives every 20 minutes empty in Sunday, for example. So I think... The competitive advantage Australia has that we sometimes don't realize is two things. 
One, we actually do have a very good healthcare system. Uh, we've got a very well-educated workforce. We have a large percentage of the health workforce um, regulated, uh, around 750,000 registered health professionals. And two, we have very good quality and safety frameworks that sit around that service delivery and that they're federally regulated. So in a lot of countries, in the US included, there are in areas national frameworks and sets of regulation. But when you look at the health workforce, a nurse could be regulated, registered, licensed in the US in 50 states and territories. So uh, they might hold three or four licenses and the licensure requirements that link to each of those states could be different across each state. You know, and if you move from California to Nevada, you might not hold a license, so you can't practice. We've solved a lot of those problems in Australia just around the operational side of healthcare. And the way that we've done that is we've built really good systems and policies and frameworks in regulation, in conventions, in practices. So I think the competitive advantage that we've got is one thing. It's that we have a highly organized healthcare system and that that then gives us the opportunity to embed that organization in software such that it becomes exportable to the world. And then so thinking about technology, so there's two parts, like Australia on the world stage when it comes to healthcare and then thinking around technology and innovation and what we're good at, because, you know, exporting all of that healthcare through software and technology, we need the capability to do that from within the country. And speaking to different people, there's generally a view that we need to get better at innovation in Australia, depending on your perspective on things. You've got a bit of a view on what's happening in other parts of the world as well, particularly in the US when it comes to technology. Do you see the opportunities for Australia to attract more technology talent into the country as opportunities arise? Yeah, I think there definitely are more opportunities. I think ultimately what will drive that is successful technology companies and kind of taking one step out of the healthcare field for a second and more into the technology field. In the last decade, we actually have seen those companies start to be built, like you know, the poster child would be Atlassian, of course, but there are many others, um, Zero, Safety Culture, Canva, Deputy, Vero. There's more coming through the ranks out of all the different incubators here in Australia, um, Melbourne, Sydney, Brisbane, right, right around the place. But the one thing that might not catch people's attention is that to back up my claim that we're actually good at regulating things and that therefore that gives us a competitive advantage to build software that regulates. If you think about those big companies, they're all built around the managing or regulation of some set of processes or some work. So zero built around how you regulate finances. Atlassian, how do you build a project? How do you regulate a team? I'm using the lowercase regulation, like to organize within some constraints or set of rules, a group of people on a project in an agile way. That's Atlassian. Canva, how do you organize design? So um, safety culture, how do you regulate for safety? So actually, that is what we've been successful at building. It's not things like blockchain or Bitcoin or Internet of Things or enterprise SaaS necessarily. It's been We've built software that helps us organize things at scale. And I think that stems from our culture. So I think the most performant, the driver for employment in the technology industry is going to be companies and the commercialization of those ideas. And I think that's what Australia needs to invest in. So the second part to your question, the second answer I would give is that the one thing, therefore, that's missing is we don't think about global markets when we build these companies. Australia is, I think, uh, the 13th largest economy in the world, something around that mark, 13th or 14th, by measure, by measure by GDP. Yet we represent 2% of global turnover. So what happens is we end up building wonderful domestic businesses 
that service 25 million people when the world's internet population might be three to four billion. So that's where the opportunity lies. It's to think global from day one. And when I do work in the US in those advisory board roles, that's the immediate difference. There's not even a sense of a, a domestic America. It's immediately global. Probably the downside is they would think of Australia and Germany and Europe and things like that as though they're states, like states that the capability needs to be built in. But at the end of the day, it's right in there as part of the market they're servicing. Around healthcare, though, normally when you build a healthcare solution, a bit of technology, you design it around the regulatory requirements or legislative requirements of that particular area. And I guess that's what we've done here in Australia. How do you build something or control for differing legislative environments if you're trying to build something globally for healthcare and technology? Basically, if you think about technology in an industry like healthcare, to your point, it's this, that of course it would be built to support the regulatory environment that the target customers fall within. Right? So in the case of Australia, it would be we're trying to build it to meet the Australian regulation. But then what we've got to ask ourselves is, well, where did that regulation come from? What sits above that? And if you use the kind of concept of first principles, the answer is, that regulation was put in place because if it's there and people practice in this way and organizations provide deliver care in this way, then a good, safe, quality healthcare experience will be delivered to the end consumer. So the key thing is to extend what it is that you're solving. You're not just solving for the Australian healthcare system. You're solving for a greater problem, which is an improvement in care. And in fact, every healthcare system in the world is organizing around that goal. I think it's those ideas that sit above regulation. Regulation's created because of them. They're the source of the stream. And when you build software and technology products, it's those ideas that you should be building around, not around any one regulatory environment. Thinking around the advisory and consulting work you do for other technology companies globally or just for the incubators and everything, comparing that to the health tech, what's similar between health technology and typical consumer or enterprise technologies or startups in those environments? I'm trying to answer your question by finding differences, yeah. but I would say there are actually a lot of similarities. And I think that these are the things that exist in common. Most people who build a startup any technology business, at least one of the founding members is probably not technical. The first challenge that that person often faces, so imagine a health professional, for example, they live, breathe, eat the healthcare experience on a daily basis. They know exactly what's wrong with it or how it could be improved. And that's great because that points to our overall objective, which is betterment improvement over time of that quality and safe healthcare system. But what doesn't enable them is not knowing how to build with technology. But actually, a lot of founders have that problem in every sector, education, automobile, transportation, aviation, it doesn't matter what it is. More often, I'll see groups of people who have domain expertise, which is hard to teach, who just need to find a partner or some way to execute on the technology front. Now, to extend that one point further, if there are any people thinking to build a technology company, just to be clear, I would definitely not advise outsourcing that. I think if you're building a technology company, you do have to have tech as a co-founder or internal in-house. You will barely even get off the runway if you're outsourcing it. So technology still is a core competence, but it doesn't mean you have to become a technologist if you're a health professional to execute on your vision. You just need to find someone to partner with that who can believe in the vision. That might take you time. It might take six months or a year. But once you have them and they've got conviction, they'll be there for the five or ten years that it takes to deliver on the vision. 
I was going to say that's a really, yeah, yeah, no, 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 that's really helpful because I know, you know, even looking in the Talking Health Tech community that we've got online, a lot of the conversation happens around clinicians who see a problem that can be solved with technology that have a desire or a passion to create a solution, but they're not technically enabled. They're not technical people in the sense of developers or being able to create the solution. So often what that next step is in terms of, hey, I've identified an opportunity that exists or this process is really clunky or this would make a huge difference to my clinical practice on a day to day. What do you reckon would be like the next step for them in terms of, is it finding a technical co-founder or is there something else they need to be doing before that in terms of making that logical progression to creating a solution? I think you would definitely want to just start trying to find, if you've got a vision to build a technology product in healthcare, like today, start trying to find, meet and get into that technology community, like bridge that gap because it might take you a year to actually find that partner. So start that process immediately. In the meantime, the things you'll want to learn is about the theories that the great internet companies have been built on. And these are concepts like Jobs to be Done from Clayton Christensen. It's a fantastic book. There's a course on Harvard Business School online that you can do on that concept. All products start with utility. So you would want to really work out what useful problem are you solving. Then the next challenge you're going to face is how you uh, go to market, which is getting traction. Once you've got that problem solved, the next one you'll face is how you monetize it. Uh, even businesses today like Airbnb and Uber, asterisk on this, but you know they're barely profitable at the best of times. They still require a lot of capital to operate. You know They're not fully financially sustainable necessarily in every market yet. So monetization can be a five or 10 year journey. Um, and then even if you do all of that, you think you're at the peak of Mount Everest, the last summit to climb is that that lasts for a long time. And that's where the ultimate challenge really sets in. Think of a business like eBay. Who would have thought that Amazon would come through and steal their thunder? Instagram would disrupt its own, its brother or sister in the form of Facebook. And when investors are looking at companies, they'll look at forward earnings estimates or lifetime value or net present value, like how much revenue. And always those charts have income coming in 5, 10, 15 years from now. Um, but if you don't get to that final summit of keeping people around, you'll never realize that revenue might never pay back on the investment for yourself or for the investors. But like, that's a problem you'll have, assuming that you've got people to use something you were able to build. And the single piece of advice I'd have for anyone getting into healthcare, you notice at the start, we were talking about 13 years working at Osmed. I still see myself working here for another 13 years at least. You hear in technology and healthcare that things go slow, right? Like that's often a complaint. Right? But let's turn that on its head and actually say, if you've got patience, you will actually do okay. Because this industry is built for longevity, not for quick wins. And that's probably the main difference between the consumer web, which is our Facebooks, Airbnbs, MySpaces, Googles, the consumer web. Those companies spin up and down in a five or 10 year period. They're not built for longevity. They're built for rapid growth. But healthcare, build a company for longevity, build something that will last 100 years. You know, that would be my single. Uh, and then you won't mind that it's going slow. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. That's some great advice there and, and a good expectation setter as well for anyone that's involved within healthcare. I think having the long game in mind is definitely necessary for everyone's sanity and also for your success. Hey, lastly then, Will, looking at Osmed then, since you're going to be there for another 13 years at least, what's on the horizon for you guys in the future and what should people look out for? Yeah, so I think our core question that we come to work every day is basically, so what? You know, people are doing more learning. They're doing their 20 or 30 or 40 hours of learning. 
but so what? Is that actually leading to improvement in care? Um, and what our users, health professionals who care about education, also ask that question. Did this actually benefit my practice? Does, is this going to benefit my patients? So do the learning and development managers at organisations all across the country who use Ausmed's learning management system. I'm not just here to tick a box. So what? I have ticked the box, but there was still an infectious outbreak. We're all meeting the requirements and the complying, but on the ground, it wasn't actually happening. So what we're trying to do is help enable our health professionals and the health workforce to get closer and closer to that impact. And there are theories to do that. One stop short of asking the patient, you know, patient satisfaction, you know, are you happy with the care you got or has the care improved? Can we ask the health professional whether they think that's happening? Can we give, give them tools to help them measure that for themselves? So, yeah, Ausmed's focus is long-term. We're really focused as a company on making education not something that you can't control for and ensuring that it's effective so that we're not just ticking boxes and that the hours that we have to do of learning are effective and impactful. And the last thing I might add, because it's definitely a bias that emerges, is that people don't want to do learning. The average amount of learning someone's doing over the last three, five, ten years is increasing um, on Ausmed's platform. So the more that people can relate learning to improvement of care, the more they're likely to do it. There's a reason why... People like me, even technologists who aren't health professionals, but certainly health professionals, enter the healthcare industry, and that's because they do care. So we want to help them ensure that the education improves care, and that's anything we can build, software or content, um, to support that. We will entertain, we will put it on the table and then try and prioritise it and go back to that last thing, which is ask ourselves every day as technologists, uh, wait, how does this actually work again? How do you build software? You know, so... Yeah, that's our goal. Perfect. Look, Will, thank you so much. I'll put some details of Ozmed so people can check out everything you do and connect and start utilizing the platform if they're not already as a clinician. And also some contact details for yourself so they can get in touch if need be or on the community. And any other resources and the tools that we talked about will be in the show notes of this episode on the website. So be sure to check that out if you want to. Look, Will, all the best for this year coming forward. And thank you so much for joining. Thanks a lot, Pete, and thanks to the health tech community. I'm an avid listener myself and probably won't listen to my own episode, but uh, (laughs) really love what you're doing here with the community. Thank you for your contribution. Thanks for listening to the show. Check out TalkingHealthTech.com to connect with other people in our community and to learn more about the Australian health tech industry. Also, make sure you hit subscribe on your favourite podcast player so you don't miss an episode and share this episode with a few people who need to hear it. Now go make it happen.